Evening, Dan. Evening, Emma. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. How are you doing? All fine, thank you. All fine. Um, yeah. How's your week been? Uh, it's been good. Yeah, I think uh, as we were chatting before, and I'm I'm in Boston later this week at the sports analytics conference on the soccer panel there. So quite looking forward to that. I've been to I've been to that conference for a number of years, but it's a very in my circles, it's a quite a big event. Um, so quite looking forward to it. Fantastic. Who are you on with? Uh, I was on with Sarah Rudd, who used to be at, um, at Arsenal and, and Seattle, uh, with Madden mm. Sormaz, who used to be at Leicester, he's now um, at 777, um, the uh, sports investment group. So should be, hopefully, a diverse set of views. Fantastic. And, um, well, we've been threatening to do this yeah. um, chat, actually, for um, a little bit now. So I'm really glad when you brought it up that... Um, we try and talk about a little bit of detail, especially because um, in a bit of prep that we were having for the, the conversation, um, you, you, I think, either did a bit of market research or just did um, uh, a little bit of um, uh, measuring the grey matter with a few conversations that you'd had over the last little bit on Twitter around your views on the 3pm um, blackout period, on um, what it does potentially to um, lower league attendances and your sort of... I guess your gut feel around what it means for football and bearing in mind, obviously, your you know, data-driven approach to things. It'd be fascinating just to hear, um, I guess, your, your view as a, as a fan, as we or both are, and then your sort of a view as someone in the industry who, you know, um, has uh, an interesting opinion on, um, on this more generally. Yeah, so I think um, a useful place to start is maybe the purpose, why we've got a 3pm blackout, and you, you're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is that there is essentially space in UEFA's rules that enables a country to be able to say at a certain period of time during the weekend, no football can be televised, which um, is designed to protect attendances. Um, and I think, I think I'm right in saying, again, correct me if I'm wrong, this is something that dates back to when football first started getting televised in the 1960s or so, uh, and executives for football clubs were, uh, at the time, I guess, um, fearful for their match day income because it wasn't really until the 1990s that broadcast income became meaningful. So really, it was about getting fans through the gate. And I guess executives were worried that if you showed games on TV, fans wouldn't want to come. Um, and I think, at least in this country, that's morphed into um, protecting, not Premier League attendances, because Premier League attendances um, are going to be high no matter what. Um, but I think the idea has morphed into protecting lower league um, attendances, um, which, despite not being a lower league um, supporter myself, very rarely go into lower league games, is something I am a fan of. Um, and I've got a couple of stats here, which I think bring it to life a little bit uh, as to why I think they are worth protecting. We can get into whether the blackout does that or not. Um, but if you take... Uh, English uh, Premier League attendances, average attendance about 40,000. And as I go down the tiers, second tier about 18,000, third tier about 10,000, fourth tier about 5,000, fifth tier 3,000, sixth tier 1,000, seventh tier 500, and eighth tier 300 people a game attending eighth tier games in England, which is pretty extraordinary when you think about it. I mean, that's more, that's pretty much the same as the amount of people that attend top division games in Latvia. Lithuania, um, not far off Montenegro, 
uh, which we'll get on to in a sec, Montenegro, not the first time Montenegro, and not the last time rather Montenegro get mentioned in this discussion. So the depth of support um, for the pyramid in this country is extraordinary. And the debate is, or, or one side of the debate is to consider whether the blackout um, has an impact on it. And the other side of the debate is, should is actually the blackout antiquated and, and should that not really be um, a consideration for the way that we broadcast matches? So hopefully that's a useful setup for for what, what we need to discuss. I think it's a brilliant um, sort of background um, analysis to sort of set up what I guess is the inevitable question. Um, and obviously the slightly wider context to this all as well, because, you know, what we're the, the the rationale and the reason for this, in a way, is um, to ensure that those games aren't broadcast in the UK at that 3pm period where the majority of the lower league matches are taking place. Now, that comes within the background of the EFL tender document, which has been widely reported, um, supposedly includes potential options um, to broadcast or stream for broadcasters and or streamers to be able to um, stream or broadcast those games at 3pm um, through either the iFollow platform, through another type of portal, through another type of platform more generally that supporters of particular clubs can access. Now, whether there's particular types of geo-blocking technology within the UK so that, you know, if um, uh, an away end is sold out, that you should be able to then go and be able to stream a particular match, you know, maybe as um, an, a discussion for another day. But we're also seeing those reports, aren't we, more around the WSL and um, the, the white paper discussion, at least at the moment, specifically around um, whether uh, women's football should be permitted to be able to show and broadcast at 3pm on a, on a Saturday and whether that's a substitutable product for, um, you know, the, the, the pro men's divisions. So yours provided a great context uh, and background. I was just interested in flo- throwing a few other, try and say that a few times, um, a few other um, sort of little um, nuances into the mix because ultimately, you know, the, the this isn't this is a debate that I think, and probably you're the same, is going to rear its head quite significantly over the next period of time. You've got the EFL probably, presumably, wanting to raise more money by being able to broadcast more games. WSL wanting to stand out potentially in a different way and have a maybe a set defined time where all the matches or a number of the matches are on, where people are at home to be able to watch it. Query whether that's going to be on. Um, uh, pay-per-view, pay-TV and or terrestrial to a degree. But I'd be fascinated, Yomar, just on your thoughts as, as, you know, an opinion on, you know, whether you think blackout period in the UK um, is is worthwhile and whether it's worth protecting those lower league attendances if that is what actually happens as a result. Yeah, so it's really, yeah, the, as, as you say, I think every league is thinking about how they kind of increase uh, the revenues and, and the, the most obvious way is broadcast income and the most obvious way of um, growing broadcast income is to broadcast matches when other matches aren't on um, or there's a space in the calendar and then you get into the obvious kind of gap in the calendar in England, which is which is 3pm. Um, so yeah, my, my view on this is is not as kind of data-led as it, as it might normally be. Um, but, you know, if we go back to what I was saying earlier, the rationale is to protect lower league attendances. There's no significant or certainly not robust evidence to suggest that um, when there is elite level football on TV 
that fewer people go to non-league games. And, and one of the ways you can test that is to uh, look at, for example, Champions League nights. And um, so obviously non-league matches are sometimes played on Champions League nights, sometimes not played on Champions League nights. And you can see on Champions League nights, I think my understanding is from the research that there isn't a huge amount of change in attendances. Um, and yes, that's midweek, so it's slightly different. But but I think what you can read from that is that your non-league supporters are your non-league supporters and they'll go to non-league games and they're kind of hardcore um, and actually, the the extent the natural extension from that is go well. You drop the blackout. You know, people who want to go watch non leagues are still going to go and go and watch non leagues. I think my challenge to that is, um, you know, going to watch non league football. Um, and th- again, this is a guess, this is an assumption. I think it's something that needs to be tested and looked at. But going to non league football is something that it's a kind of habit that's formed. It's probably formed when you're at a younger age, um, wanting to, you know. Uh, with your with your parents going to games um you know they might take you to non-league football um as as a kid and it's a habit that develops over the course of kind of 10 20 30 years when you start paying for stuff you start paying to go to non-league football as opposed to to necessarily buying subscriptions and my concern would be if you start broadcasting and it came up this weekend because arsenal were on you know arsenal obviously in the title race a lot of their games are important a lot of arsenal fans want to watch it but couldn't in england in the UK this weekend. Um, and the argument I would put is that if you put Arsenal at 3pm this weekend, if you put Arsenal at 3pm most weekends or, or a big team on at 3pm on most weekends, then that young fan who might, at the age of 25, 30, 40, go and watch non-league football, today gets in a habit of watching 3pm football on TV, the big elite teams. And, and we have to face it that most people want to watch, and most people when they start to watch the big elite teams generally end up staying watching the big elite teams um so my concern is less that you would see a drop off in attendances overnight because as i said at the top those attendances numbers are are pretty remarkable that we're getting 300 people to a game in the eighth tier thousand people to the game um in the sixth tier that's you know unprecedented um or, or certainly unrivaled rather across across europe um but my concern is that you create a long-term um yeah a loss of fans and and it purely, my argument is, is almost purely cultural. I, I think the non-leagues have huge cultural, traditional, historical value. Some of them are kind of have value to communities. Um, and I think they, that is worth protecting, um, you know, almost at all costs. Um, I think it's one of the things that really differentiates English football um, from, from any other football in the world. Um, but I also recognise, and maybe we can get into this, the challenges of the modern fan wanting to, you know, consume all different types of content the fact that there is piracy issues around 3 pms and so on so uh yeah it, there's there's no right answer on this at all um but i'm coming from the starting point of, of believing that that protection of the the non-league attendances is not a isn't it that i wouldn't i'd be scared of risking um the dropping of that protection if that makes sense it does i think it's a great appraisal generally and um yeah, the, our original discussion didn't. It came around um, because of lo- because of these debates that have been having, and then a piece that um, one of my colleagues, Ni Anderson, and myself wrote a little bit ago. Around, um, I put it on my blog around sort of changing uh, paywalls and changing attention habits, and um, and my sort of central idea, which you actually touched on, Omar, which I think is exactly right, is I, th- I think a lot of our. Um, 
uh, a lot of the things that ultimately we will uh, pick up as adults are <laughs> good and bad, I guess, um, are, um, are nurtured through childhood. And one of the things that we, um, uh, to a degree, were still part of, I know you're a, a decent amount younger than me, um, but, you know, we, I, I more or less saw most um, uh, top division football and Champions League football in front of the paywall, i.e. before the paywalls actually came along. And one of my um, sort of discussion points was around whether if there is that, well, rather, if there isn't that type of content, which is more readily available live without the friction potentially of subscriptions, I'm not saying all subscriptions are good, bad or otherwise, then it's it's more difficult to be able to draw that person in to whatever product it is that they are wanting to consume or think that they would like to consume. And the other thing that I think is an important one that I sort of mentioned from um, a wider context, which is, you know, I don't think football's competing in a vacuum with itself. Um, and that sort of goes to my sort of first point around, um, you know, simply putting a blackout period on um, for for football at 3 p.m. You know, I, I think it possibly missells itself um, because, you know, younger generations, and I don't pretend to be one of them, but I do end up having to speak to a lot of them for their views on a variety of different things talk a lot about and talk to me about how, you know, they're spending hours on YouTube, on TikTok, Fortnite, you know, Netflix, Roadblocks, plenty of other platforms. And I think sometimes there is a sort of misunderstanding around attention spans. I'm of the view, because I see it all the time with my my own girls, younger cousins and such, that, you know, they're on Fortnite or gaming or FIFA or YouTube for hours and hours. I'm not convinced their attention spans are shortening. I just think there's so many platforms competing for all of that finite attention. And I think that as a result, if uh, that content isn't as readily available as possible, I'm not saying all of it needs to be in front of the paywall or otherwise, I possibly think that rights holders, uh, talk about a little bit in the piece, um, are, are put in, uh, you know, strategically quite a tricky position. Do they try and, it's almost like the cricket argument, wasn't it, Omar, from a few years ago where, you know, post-2005 Ashes, everybody started playing cricket after the brilliant Ashes summer um, that was uh, on Channel 4, if I remember correctly, and then it went behind the paywall for a bit and all the rest of it. I think the same thing applies is that ultimately, um, I think I think a lot of kids are finding easier more frictionless, probably slightly more addictive ways to be able to consume lots and lots of different content. And as a result of that, I think, um, my, for what it's worth, is that if um, there's a blackout period, it doesn't mean that then people will go and watch football. It probably just means they'll go and do something else, which isn't football, if that makes sense, just as a wider systemic point. Um, and I also think the other bit, which, you know, we talk. Uh, you, you talked about Montenegro just before as well. Um, you know, the UK is the outlier in a lot of different ways. More generally, England and Scotland and Montenegro are the only three UEFA countries that um, choose to enforce the the blackout period. And I think the the important thing to probably think about when you're considering this blackout period as well is, you know, it was something that was brought in a number of decades ago, granted to protect. Um, you know, lower league attendances. But I'm not so sure it's a, 
um, uh, a zero-sum um, alternative anymore. If you do one thing, then you can't do the other. I don't think that if you are uh, if you are allowing 3 p.m. games to be live on television, uh, or rather stream live even, and maybe that's my, my, my slip in a way, that you have to be at home watching it on the television. I, I think and I see whenever I go to games and I go to some non-league games sometimes, or I go to see other leather, leisure pursuits, <laughs> you know, as we do and lots of different things, is that people are streaming matches, they're streaming content, they're streaming cricket or football or tennis or cricket, whatever else it might be, whilst they're doing the other thing. So I also don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that um, uh, actually take, getting rid of the 3 p.m. blackout actually is a complementary process. It might well be that um, rights holders are able to actually monetize to a greater extent with the you know emergence of 5G, greater rollout and speed times for Wi-Fi and, uh, and coverage that you know people are going to non-league games but streaming a Premier League match, for example, and or vice versa, in truth. So and we can talk about, you know, any of the particular bits that crop up on, on that point, Omar, but I'm I'm intrigued by the the way that technology is uh, effectively meaning that, you know, every industry, sport is no exception, is having to evolve. And the mere ability now that, you know, there is still scarcity of football matches at three PM, I'm I'm maybe more of just the, the the open to seeing what could possibly be done whilst, um, you know, at the same time, hopefully not decreasing lower league attendances by huge numbers. I just wonder whether it's slightly more of a complementary product rather than it is um, uh, a competitive product. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. It's, it's not certainly not something I've, I've considered. You're absolutely right. You do see people streaming other things, um, almost like multitasking wherever they are whether that's at a football game at a theater or or whatever it is you you see people doing um multiple things on the phone now uh, which which makes sense so so uh, yeah maybe having that combination of the live experience um you know popping your head up in the same way you know often on champions league night you might be watching something on your big tv and also dual screening screening on a neck on a second screen um you know another game at the same time so yeah, I, I think it's an interesting. I, the fact is, no one's got on all the answers on this, and I think um, it's worth almost having these types of discussions to understand the full breadth of, of what could happen to to fan behaviours. One of the things that um, I, I completely agree with on you is is this kind of point around attention spans, and it's it's interesting because it's been it's a point that's been used around um, the European Super League. You know, um, often pointed out that young fans aren't interested in football they like shorter forms of entertainment or whatever it is and there may be elements of truth in that that football needs to be savvy to but i agree i think it's just the way that you know young people and um consume content now is is different not that not at all that i'm an expert on on this specific topic yeah and i think the other the other i think fascinating area is uh, you, you touched on it as well omar on the piracy side of things so again i talk in my piece and then talk to lots of people about whether this is a little bit closer to you know the napster um piracy moment than people actually realize i know everyone's moved on but you know i remember a time where you know that napster file sharing stuff really you know was much more seamless than having to go out and buy a cd obviously a lot cheaper as well until an actual product came along, which was effectively Apple streaming and Spotify, which made um, that ability to be able to access music 
and and pay a legitimate price. Well, some may argue it's not a um, you know substantive price. Some of the musicians and artists might not say that, but you know a price for um, um, responsiveness, for um, quality of stream, for um, the the ability to be able to get the thing that you want almost instantaneously, and. I think in a lot of ways, football isn't there yet at all. Um, and it leaves, obviously, with the piracy element, a lot of money on the table because, you know, I think it's probably fair to say there's plenty of pubs still around and plenty of people that, you know, can easily access a stream if they want to get hold of it. Now, the the, the negative downsides of all of those bits are you know you're doing something illegal and you can get caught you might get a virus you're you know you might be paying someone um uh, through fraud to be able to actually access something that they're not able to do etc so you know the the risk rewards are quite significant and so i almost think that if there is this more seamless approach to accessing greater quality of content there is always a market for that, I, I believe, at the right time. Everyone said, oh, Napster will just continue on forever. But, you know, where's that now? And where's all of the established streaming companies? I'm not saying there aren't significant differences between models and approaches and dynamics and industry standards and everything else there might be. But in the end, what we're actually talking about is a scarcity of product, exactly how you said with the Arsenal example, which is, you know, outside of the UK, it's easy. Inside of the UK, it's very difficult. So, you know, I always say to a lot of my friends, it's like I sometimes much prefer going on holiday. It might be not something my missus wants to hear, but I can watch four or five matches if I want to at any one time, Um, you know, at a pub in Cyprus or in South Africa or in Tenerife. But on on a Saturday for 3 p.m., I absolutely can't do that if I'm at home. Um, And so... Granted, scarcity can sometimes be a good thing in maintaining value, um, but I think there's something to be said on the whole um, access at price, at scale, um, which might be quite compelling. Yeah, the, the piracy point, um, which so I, part of the spark for this conversation was a tweet I did over the weekend on, on this particular topic, and a lot of people point to the piracy, which I, I did a bit of reading up on um, subsequently, and and. There are some good numbers and some compelling numbers around, you know, 40, 50, 60 percent of people, young people um, having said that they you know, streamed a game illegally um, in the previous 12 months. So it's certainly an issue. And I know there's a very good podcast on official partner that, that did a podcast on this recently as well around the, the issue of piracy and, and how to tackle it. And yeah, uh, some, some there is a, an argument in that. Um, you know, you, you remove the blackout, you remove the issue of piracy. I'm not sure you necessarily completely remove the issue of piracy if subscriptions are are as expensive as, as they are, but but perhaps you you diminish the need for it. Um, but yeah, the, the the point of scarcity, I think, is is a is a good one as well. I, you know, you, there is a fair question if the Premier League were to add more games um, to make more games available um, in its packages, whether that would actually increase. The value of the rights, or it might even diminish the value of the rights. Um, it, there's an argument, you know, the additional games that you would have don't really drive subscriptions for a Sky Sports or even a new player in the market that might want to enter and, and gobble up some of those additional games. So, um, yeah, it's that it, there's definitely a, a question around that. Um, there was another point I wanted to make, which I can't quite remember. Um, don't worry, I was going to make mention one thing whilst. Um, you do as well, which was, you know, and and definitely interrupt me if it comes back quickly, but um, it was just simply on, you know, taking the WSL and EF, EFL point a little bit further, which is, you know, 
it would be fascinating to see if that becomes a differentiator. Let's just say, um, could 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 blackout continue for the Premier League and for men's football, and, and sorry, just for the Premier League, but then be. Um, uh, but then actually be removed for the EFL and the WSL, for example, um, you know, suddenly having that appointment to view, um, that sort of consistency, would would that make any difference? Firstly, I was just thinking from a practical perspective, but I was also thinking from a commercial perspective. Are more people at home at three o'clock on a Saturday or are more people spending leisure time going in and around to be able to second, second screen whilst multi-screening, etc.? So I... I'm really intrigued by what could be a differentiator and a substantive differentiator between what the Premier League might maintain, but what the EFL and WSL might actually change. Yeah, I think it's it's a great point. And uh, WSL is a really good one in particular because I everything I, I read about audiences for women's football is that it is different to the audience for men's football. The overlap um, isn't there as as big as you might expect. Um, you know, a lot of fans of women's football are, are families, um, obviously women and girls, much more so than, than men's football. Uh, and that brings with it different prime slots. It might not be, as you say, it might not be Saturday 3pm when people are actually available to go and, go and watch games or watch it on TV. Um, it might be more of a, a Sunday slot or it might be another time of the week, uh, as an example. So uh, that's certainly something that I understand is being worked out in the game at the moment. Um, and, you know, obviously requires a fair bit of um, analysis to, to go into it um, but yeah on, on the whole I, I think um, it, it is interesting uh, you raised it you know England is is the outlier on this um, they are it is just England Scotland and, and Montenegro as, as the three countries that um, use this rule um, but it the whole area is, is clearly kind of ripe for disruption I remembered I also remembered the point I was going to ask which was around um, this kind of direct consumer um, proposition that's been discussed, and I know it's maybe a topic for another another time. But you know that if if more broadcast slots were to open up for particularly Premier League teams, you could imagine that they would want the ability to sell those games directly themselves. Um, be interested in your view on the kind of likelihood of something like that happening in the next call it five ten years um, versus continuing with the. Uh, existing model of centralized sale of, of broadcast rights well yeah i mean it's the it's the sort of premflix model that uh, simon jordan gets very excited about on talk sports um every now and then um, explaining the the hundreds of billions that the premier league might uh, might make and i think actually he's got a point in a lot of ways i think um like anything though there is massive difficulty in you know because effectively the premier league is an ip an intellectual property rights holder um, and it provides a license for then the broadcasters in each of their countries who know that country and jurisdiction a hell of a lot better than the Premier League in truth to be able to then um, you know distribute and deal uh, with every customer that it needs to be able to deal with without the hassle. So it would fundamentally change the Premier League's model without a shadow of question or doubt. The, the other bit that I find fascinating as well is that there's that query you talked about right just at the end of your question around collective. So that there, there is something to be said for whether the Premier League wants to increase its collective di- amount of matches that it would show. But there's also a query exactly like you said about whether 
clubs would want to, like for Project Big Picture and otherwise, actually almost contract out of the collective model for a number of games for them to be able to broadcast to their fans OTT around the world or in particular jurisdictions. So I think that's something which is a, an interesting nuance. And I think that the overall play generally is, you know, would the Premier League, and and um, uh, I think it's, I, I, I remember uh, uh, writing a little bit about it. It was, it was James Masters that did actually talk about um, the fact that they do have potential um, uh uh, or potential contractual provisions which would allow the Premier League to be able to go direct to consumer in particular jurisdictions. So to your point, I would be shocked if the Premier League inside the next couple of cycles, absolutely, absolutely, or rather I'd be shocked if they don't experiment um, and they do go direct to market in particular, maybe siloed um, particular jurisdictions and see how those types of experiments go because as you can imagine they're not just going to suddenly turn around to bt or tnt as it soon will be um and sky and amazon and say you know that five million pound multi-year three-year deal uh thank you but goodbye we're just going to go straight to market because that's obviously um you know a significant risk but in the short term there's absolutely looks like evidence that the Premier League are going to test out a few different Prem Flix equivalents, but it might just be in smaller jurisdictions. And then there's the query about whether um, in the UK the Premier League decides to broadcast more matches or it allows its member clubs to be able to do something of the same. Yeah, and I think when you get into the, the member clubs doing that, you, you then run into... Um, yeah, that's where I think some of the big clubs see the opportunity where, you know, if you're a Man United, you can, you know, realise the fact that, you know, a big chunk of fans do want to watch Man United and you don't necessarily realise that through the centralised broadcast distributions at the moment because, because of the kind of fixed 1 to 1 to 1.8 ratio in, in the Premier League. So, yeah, huge, huge amount of change likely to happen in the broadcast space, I think, is the, is the kind of takeaway from, from this conversation. Watch this space, and because I think over the yeah, as you said, between now and the end of the season and the beginning of next, whilst the next broadcasting cycle happens and the EFL cycle comes up, tender comes along, and the WSL white paper um, see, you know comes to comes to fruition at some point, I think there's a, a lot of moving parts right now. Yeah, absolutely. All right, thanks, Dan. And we'll Great chat stuff. Soon. Speak soon. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Football Law read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website danielg.com forward slash blogs please do subscribe to the Dundeal football podcast like share and tag me if you like the content if not my voice you'll probably also like my book Dundeal an insider's guide to football contracts multi-million pound transfers and premier league big business a bit of a mouthful it's available to buy in hard copy digitally Fire Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.